Hey everyone, this is a heads up that today we are going to be talking about some hard stuff and specifically child and adolescent suicide. There has been an increase in media attention around it and also an increase in the occurrence of suicide attempts. We have known this at Podcast Therapist because of the work that we do. However, now it's really coming out in the national news and we want to address it directly. It's a hard episode to listen to. It also may be helpful. So we encourage you to be thoughtful about if you want to listen and also thoughtful about how are you going to take care of yourselves and your families if this feels really hard for you. Thank you all. And we hope everyone's hanging in there. Welcome to Podcast Therapist, presented by Virginia Family Therapy. I'm Sarah. I'm Caroline. And I'm Amanda. As three family therapists, we know how hard it is to feel like you're being the parent you want to be while juggling everyone's needs. We specialize in helping families just like you during the long days of multitasking and constant searching for the bar of success. Our podcast mixes expertise, real life advice, and embarrassing stories. Whose embarrassing story? (laughs) Yours. (laughs) Let's walk through this together. Welcome to Podcast Therapists. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Sarah. Hi. So you guys, I know we have been talking amongst ourselves about a lot of the headline news that we've been reading about kids and adolescents and suicide. And I think we're going to be brave enough to try to have a little bit of conversation around that today on the podcast. Yeah, we are, I think... It's something that we have known is creeping up and and the mental health of kids and teenagers, there's a crisis right now. And I think we have known that it's here and now to see the numbers and to have it in the national news feels right because other people now know and are seeing what we've seen. And it also, though, is giving numbers and reality to something that's so sad. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is a really charged topic to to listen to or talk about for a lot of people. It happens to be something that we as clinicians talk about fairly often because it's something that we work with a lot. But I think it's, it's something that a lot of times families or parents really don't know much about until it's a crisis in their own family. And that's really hard or in their community. And that's, that's hard. That's a hard way to learn. Yeah. And I think like, I think everyone who works with kids and teens, whether it's like us as mental health professionals or teachers has been like feeling it, like feeling how much kids are struggling. But to see the statistics, I think is more jarring than I could have anticipated. Pediatricians too. Yeah, Yeah. I agree. Mm -hmm. So um, what is the most recent stuff that there's a lot that kind of all of a sudden dropped this week. And I feel like it, coincided a little bit with Meta slash Facebook, Instagram being called up to, um, you know, kind of defend themselves in front of Cong- a congressional committee. But it feels like a lot has hit this week, basically. Yeah. Well, I think there are a ton of articles that came out because the Surgeon General released a report on it. And so I think like a lot of news outlets like the New York Times and the LA Times, right, are like reporting on the statistics that were released in that report. 
And so basically what it says, and this is from the New York Times, is that in the U.S., emergency room visits for suicide attempts have risen 51% for adolescent girls in early 2021 compared to the same period of time in 2019. And that the figure has increased by 4% for adolescent boys. Wow. That's a lot. So it's really hitting teenage girls right now. It's hitting teenage girls. And then it goes on to say that basically globally overall symptoms of anxiety and depression doubled during the pandemic. And this is not in this article, but what we also know is that right now, you know, if you are an adolescent, if you are a female adolescent, if you are a racial minority, or if you are part of the LGBTQ community, you're actually at greater risk for this. Yeah. I mean, I think that's not a surprise to us. And I think a lot of times what happens for us is we see it in our office about a year or two before it comes out in some sort of research study. So I think I know in our community, we've talked about that in our practice. We've talked about it with our the pediatricians that we team up with. We've talked about kind of with school counselors. And I think parents are probably pretty aware of this as well mm-hmm. as a whole. And so I think what we want to do is because suicide is it can be taboo, but it it can't be taboo right now if you have kids and teens in your house. And so we want to start talking with the parents about it so that you all can have just some more information and and more context around around suicide because I'm sure it's on your mind and we don't want you to feel alone with it. We're not trying to scare anybody, but we do want to bring folks out of isolation and feeling really stuck, thinking that their kid's the only one who's struggling or that they're the only one worried about it. The three of us talk about it on a daily basis and talk about it a lot with, a, with parents that we work with. So it's, it obviously is a little easier for us to have this conversation. But we do want to also normalize that there are a lot of people out there just struggling and suffering, and a lot of them are young. And when they're young, things can get overwhelming really quickly and not to scare anybody again, but it's just really important to have this information. Like we are so good as a community or as a, I think as a group kind of educating about like COVID, I mean, even little kids can repeat details about COVID and understand, you know, things that all be helpful and with, with COVID as a, as a virus. And I think we do a good job um, teaching kids about health and good practices but we don't talk enough about mental health, fitness, and good practice here. And so we're just, this is partly why we're doing this podcast. We just really want to make sure we um, try to help as much as we can with families and, and make sure that they, again, know that they're not alone, but also know that some of the things to look for are just what to do. Mm-hmm. And also, I do think the reality is kids are having a hard time and there's so much resilience and health in kids and families too. So it's important to hold both. Just because we're talking about it doesn't mean that it is impacting your child. You know your child best. So this is a reminder that there is sadness and sorrow and health and resilience. So let's talk a little bit about the signs and symptoms of 
of suicidal ideation, just, just signs that your kid or teenager might be giving off that, that suicide is rattling around in their brain on some level. And suicidal ideation means thinking about suicide. And that's different from having a plan. So suicidal ideation in general is just having thoughts about suicide. And the weird thing is, is that some suicidal ideation can be within the realm of normal, just just a reactive thought like, oh my gosh, a kid feels stressed. I want to kill myself. Just saying that that's one level. And then there is a level of thinking about suicide a lot. Mm -hmm. So just because your kid has said something like that, it doesn't mean that they're suicidal. And we don't want you to be the one who's making that call. Yeah. And I think what's hard is that um, saying, I just want to kill myself like that actually has become common, like a common phrase in language. Like it's, it's really something a lot of teens and tweens will say. Yeah. Or like, or saying, I just want to die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I've got so much homework tonight. I just want to die or, you know, something like that. And I think that is different. Um, and, and kids can also talk about just wanting to disappear. And that is also a little different. Mm-hmm. And I think it's okay even though these are like common phrases, right? To have a conversation in your house that like, we're not just going to say those things when we're stressed out because it's a serious topic and it's something that we have to take seriously. So if you want to say like, I have so much homework, I don't want to do it. It's terrible. F this, right? Like, is there another way you can say how you're feeling but hey, as your mom, if you're saying something like that, it's going to be taken seriously, right? And you have to give your kid time to adjust if that's become just like a phrase that they use. But I think it's okay to, to set a limit around it in terms of like using it in a context as just casual conversation. Is that fair? Yeah, that's actually a rule in my house. So that's not a phrase that we use as adults in my house. And it's not a phrase that I've allowed to be used by my teen ever, actually, even as a little kid. And also the rule extends to her friends that are kids and teens now. Um, because what I said was, if there's ever anyone who feels that way, I will be happy to help. But just using it, it's just, I don't really appreciate using it in a, in a kind of a flippant way. Like it's not funny to me. And I would always take the blame of like, it's, I know it's because of what I do and I'm sensitive to it. So just, it's out of respect for me in that way. And so I think it's helpful to put boundaries around it that are healthy. And I think it really helps as a parent. Cause then I like, if my daughter says that she knows I'm going to take that seriously because then, because the intent is then serious at that point. Mm-hmm. And it's just a clarifying thing, but it's become slang really as a coping statement. And I think if we set our kids up pretty early on, then you do know when to take it seriously. If you set your kids up that this isn't something you joke about, this this isn't a way we express our feelings, then when they do say that, you know you, you know where your child is. And it doesn't mean that that train has already left the station. I mean, I think you could, it's if you have older kids and you didn't set that as a standard, which most people probably wouldn't unless they were a therapist and, you know my daughter rolls her eyes in a big way when things like this come up. But 
I think it's really okay now. Let's say your kid is 15 and you've never really said anything about it or talked about it. It's okay now to just say, look, I just read some articles or just heard a podcast and and this is it's a little more serious right now. And so I want you to know that I am listening to you and I'll hear you if you say that, but it will mean that. Like mm-hmm. it'll I will take it literally. So let's just not say it. Like, let's not use that unless you really need something. Let's talk more about feelings. Like you were saying, Caroline and Amanda, and kind of explaining that. So if your kid is talking about killing themselves, that is a a sign for you to pay attention to. If they're talking about feeling hopeless, if they're talking about not having a reason to live, if they're talking about being a burden. so. What, what would be an example of being a burden? Like, it's so hard for everyone to take care of me. I'm really like worrying about parents, worrying about them. Mm-hmm. And friends. Um, it can come out in some anger and irritability too. Yes, yes. So talking about being a burden or if a kid is feeling trapped. And I think that one's actually really important because kids and teenagers inherently are trapped in a lot of ways, sadly, because they don't have autonomy over a lot of their decisions. And so it it is actually a common feeling, but when they begin expressing it in a way that, because that that means that they feel like they have no other way out, Mm -hmm. right? Like this chemistry test is happening tomorrow and my friend's I don't have any friends anymore and there's no way to make this better. There's no way out of this situation that that's a sign. Mm-hmm. I think kids can be protective of their parents and not want to share things sometimes until things get really bad. And so I think the other thing as a parent is when a kid comes and goes, you know, I am feeling like I just can't do this anymore. Um, just because that kid hasn't shared feelings for the last three weeks about how they're doing, you know, it's it. a lot of times they're protective of their parents. They don't want it, it, especially in that sense of feeling like a burden. They don't want to keep telling their parents that they don't feel good. Um, and so sometimes it is that they all of a sudden walk up and they're just like, I can't do this anymore. And they are looking for help at that point too. Mm-hmm. And if they're talking about being in unbearable pain. So in that same way, feeling, feeling trapped in a situation, or feeling they're feeling so, so sad. And it, it is, it is genuine pain. And I think mm-hmm. that is something that's hard to understand. I think, unless you see people a lot that are in that kind of pain, but it is genuine pain. And you would probably know that if that was, if your kid was in that situation. And I think like we often hear about these things together, right? I'm in so much pain. I feel so hopeless. It's not going to get better. Right? Like, my pain is a burden. Right? They're not saying it in those words necessarily. But like, I often at least see them like clustered. With some kids, um, it may be that you see things they're writing or drawing so it's an expression of the pain. And if there's things that concern you with that, that's important to also pay attention to. So some kids aren't as verbal and won't maybe express feelings in the way that we're saying that's super clear. Like, hey, mom, I'm feeling really bad. Um, it's more likely, you know, there might be some drawing somewhere in their room or 
a, you know, a poem that you pick up that's a little concerning. I always say, you know, I really believe in privacy for kids and adolescents as they grow up. But if there's ever a concern, privacy's out the window. Mm-hmm. And and in that, I certainly, you know, very very sadly, there are kids who will write suicide notes. And if you find a suicide note, that is an immediate sign that you need to to get help. Um, but that is something that happens. And I think trust yourself. I mean, you're the expert on your kid. If you just feel like something's not quite right, you don't have to be the one to do the intervention. I think that's what we're saying too. Like we don't want parents to feel like they need to be the expert on depression and suicide, but it is important to do something. Um, But I think, you know, if something just doesn't feel right, if it feels a little off, it's really okay to just trust your, your gut on that as a parent. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And we'll get to what to do when these signs and symptoms are occurring. But we also want to talk about different behaviors that you might see from your kids. And and an increased use of alcohol and drugs is certainly a risk, a risk factor. And that can be hard because it might look like they're going out and having a good time or they're experimenting in their room. Either way it is an increased risk factor. Another one is looking for a way to end their lives. And and sadly, there are ways on the internet that you can find. That's how kids will find out ways to end their lives. And so um, knowing if they're Google searching or if they what their search history is to will will help you know if they're looking for that. And if you find out that they're looking for that, that's an immediate that's an immediate warning for you. And on Instagram and some of the other um, social media sites where there's an algorithm that a kid can get trapped in, mm-hmm. if a kid mm-hmm. just starts looking at something, even probably on another site some of the social media sites will then start feeding things into what they're looking and it becomes kind of this loop. And so it's, I think not a bad idea to sit down and have your kids share what's on their Instagram or TikTok. Um, because I know, I, I mean, I have those apps as well and I have totally different things coming across my screen than my 17 year old. Yep. And I think it's okay. Like, I've said this, I think in a previous podcast, like our job as parents in the physical world is to keep our kids safe, right? And we also have to do that in this digital world, right? So knowing where your kid goes in the digital world is appropriate, right? Like you don't spend your whole day being like, I don't know, is my kid at school? Is my kid at their friend's house? Is my kid at home, right? Like you create systems to know where your kid is physically and you can create systems to know like where is my kid going in the digital world Mm -hmm. right I think like having them scroll their Instagram feed and see what the algorithm is showing right or like going through social media or like talking to them about what are you looking at right like I think it's appropriate to know those things and you can frame it to your kid it's not that I don't trust you there's just a lot out there. Mm-hmm. You're still going to get pushed back, by the way, but that's mm-hmm. okay. A hundred percent. Other behaviors might be withdrawing from activities and that that can be on a range of situations. So really healthy kids can withdraw from activities too. Kids that are not 
feeling suicidal. So that's one of those ones that there's, there's some room for gray sleeping too much or too little visiting or calling people to say goodbye. is pretty immediate information that you need to get some help quickly giving away prized possessions, increased aggression and fatigue. So again, the increased aggression and the fatigue can be symptoms of lots of things, but it it also can be a symptom of this. Other symptoms would be their mood, just their overall mood, which I think is what you were talking about, Sarah, around if you just feel like something's off. Mm -hmm. And if their mood is overall depressed, anxious, big loss of interest in things that used to make them happy. So maybe they were on the soccer team and they're not on the soccer team anymore. Maybe they really love playing video games and they're not playing video games anymore. A big loss of interest in activities that used to bring them joy. Irritability. Although that can also just be teenage boy and teenage girl probably too. So that's a hard one. And I think like you can just be depressed. Right. And I think this is where I think it's really important to have mental health professionals involved to know, like, where is my level of concern and how worried do I need to be? We see clients who are depressed or anxious and not suicidal, who are also experiencing some of these things. Right. But it's on mental health professionals to tell you what to do right? It's not Mm -hmm. on you to make those decisions. So knowing that, hey, if I'm seeing this, my kid might be okay, but I don't get to make that decision, right? Mm -hmm. I have to take them in and have them talk to someone who can tell me, here's where we are. Well, it, it, it also just in the relationship avoids conflict because you're not trying to make the decision, which is a really difficult, I mean, it's a difficult call to make. And I think if, if you have a kid that's feeling sensitive or raw already, you know, it could co- it could create a lot of conflict between the two of you. If you're trying to make these decisions where when you pull in a third party, that's an expert, you can, you're both kind of working together with this other person and it becomes more collaborative automatically. I mean, I have to say, and I mean, I don't know how you feel about this I mean, I have a 17-year-old. I would not be assessing my own Mm 17-year-old. And I've been doing this 30 years. Um, I would absolutely go to someone else to make that call and that decision. And I I wouldn't, um, you know, it's not like I would handpick someone. I would go through the channels that I need to go through. So if you see any of those signs or symptoms from your kid, what we're saying is that it could be a range of things. It could be a hard time or it could be significant suicidal ideation or plan. And we don't know your kid. Obviously, this is a podcast, but also you, most parents are not, they're parents, right? You all are parents. And it's not your job to make the call of if it's on the relatively normative side, or if it's really concerning, we think that you should take your kid to talk to a professional when you have any sort of idea or, or your kid is demonstrating any of these signs or symptoms. Yeah. We think it's your job to get your kid to someone who could help. 
we also want to take the pressure off of the parent trying to be the expert in that moment. I mean, I do not have a medical degree and I'm always happy to go pay my copay to have a pediatrician tell me that my daughter is fine. Mm-hmm. And same thing, if you have a situation that you're questioning and you go in and everything's okay, or there's a plan to be to put in place to help, great. Um, and and even if you're um, if your child is really struggling, there will always there are lots of resources that as a parent you don't really know are there until you need them. The expert will know. Mm-hmm. I also think that as a parent taking the action of like, hey, I'm going to take us to someone who's going to decide what you need shows our kid that like there is support out there, right? Like there is, there are professionals who can help you and help the parents. And what Sarah, you're saying is like, even as a really seasoned therapist, like I'm a parent first and it's too close emotionally for me to make that decision. Absolutely. But, and I think that reaching out and having another person in the conversation, A, that other person is likely a professional and it's their job, but also it helps everyone realize, and and the kid in particular, that they're not alone. Because one of the biggest risk factors for, for suicide is a feeling of loneliness. And that's part of why there's, there's theory that that's part of why it spiked through the pandemic. And so if your kid is feeling lonely, so lonely that they're feeling suicidal and you take them to someone, then they're not alone anymore. And that's, that's half the battle right there. And there's no judgment. Zero. Mm -hmm. None. I mean, as parents, we tend to be very charged with our own judgment about ourselves, but honestly, you know, there's no judgment about your parenting or any of those things. The key or the focus is how, how your child is and making sure that your child gets better no one's going to question anything else and and be concerned about the other things we're going to try to help as best we can. I think the other thing to remember is that, and this is true of everything, when you have kids and teens and tweens or tweens and teens, things feel so intense and one minute can feel really, really hard and one minute feel not so hard. So with that, their action or taking action can be very impulsive and very fast. So again, not something you want to really just sit on and think about, but more like something that does not to scare anybody, but it's important to to not ignore these things and to really move forward and include someone else in this consult, basically. Who would you recommend or what resources would you recommend? So there are lots of resources out there. I think Depending on your level of concern, I think a good place to start is your pediatrician. Your pediatrician knows your kid. Your pediatrician has conversations like this all the time. Your pediatrician likely has openings for you because you have a relationship with them. So that tends to be a really good entry place. Is it the is it the end place all the time? No, but your pediatrician can help direct you to where to go. That's part of their job. So that's one really good starting place that that most people can access pretty quickly. Let them know too, like when I call the pediatrician to get, I don't know, to get like something, a rash looked at for my kid, that might take like six weeks. But 
But if you let them know that this is really important, it's an immediate mental health concern, they will bump you up way earlier. So let the receptionist know. And, and when you talk about no judgment, Sarah, I'm not lying to you. People who are working with kids right now, we all know so much of this is pandemic related. So there really is no judgment at all. And you can let the people, the receptionist, wherever you're calling, know what's going on. Your, your receptionist usually has a plan for how to deal with that because we're seeing it so frequently. Yeah. I mean, the kids with mental health concerns will get put on schedules just like kids with, you know, physical health concerns and mm-hmm. because it's all the same. It's, mm-hmm. the, it's the overall wellness yeah. of your child. Mm-hmm. Pediatrician's first stop. What, what else? So I, I think if you have a therapist on board, contact your therapist immediately. Make sure you're communicating these concerns to a therapist. I would say, you know, most therapists don't use email communication as a, as a valid way of communicating clinical concerns. So call your therapist um, or call your child's therapist or bring it up in their next session, depending on your level of concern. Um, so just bring it up and talk directly about it if you're worried about it for your kid. And if your kid doesn't have a therapist and you have a therapist, call your therapist. Absolutely. Other resources also. Like mm-hmm. all of us are kind of, it's not like we all know each other, but we all know how to manage something like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking for a therapist and can't find one, sadly, you are not alone with that either. There is a huge shortage of therapists right now, and it is it is hard to find a therapist so that's why we're saying start with your pediatrician. They'll that they you'll have more access to a pediatrician potentially than a therapist initially if you especially if you can't find a therapist. And don't feel badly if you can't find a therapist because a lot of people can't and continue to work on it. Continue to press on the people that have those connections. Yeah, and we know that that feeling is really disheartening when you're like looking for support for yourself or your kiddo and people are full, it's really hard. And like providers are doing their best to give as much care as we can. But we're also seeing that like, Hey, our mental health system wasn't prepared for like this kind of capacity. It's really sad. And I think, you know, we're going to have to adjust, but that's sort of, part of the pandemic Mm -hmm. is like there's been a surge and systems can't change as quickly as we need them to. I mean, that's part of why we're doing this podcast is because so many parents aren't getting what they need necessarily because there aren't enough therapists. The systems aren't supporting what people need mental health wise right now. Mm -hmm. Every community should have a crisis team of some sort. So talk about that. Sarah. Yes. So I, th- I think every state, and I'm not sure, but I know in Virginia, every county or every area has a mental health crisis team available. And whether they're mobile, sometimes there's a mobile crisis team, sometimes there's not. Um, and you have to actually go to their center. Um, but you are always, it's a usually a 24-7 accessible phone number goes to them and they will set up an appointment, whether you're an adult or a kid rapidly. So that's a really good resource as well. And then they oftentimes will then work within the community with, you know, place, helping find therapists and, you know, just like a, anybody else would for the next step. 
but it, it is an expert that, and they are mental health experts, they're mm-hmm. clinicians. Um, and they, there will be usually a crisis team that will do the assessment. And that is like their job, right? Like this is what crisis counselors do is assess children or teens or adults for safety, right? Like that, you know, whether it's like a mobile crisis team or a crisis line, or you're in an emergency room, like crisis counselors, like that is what they do. And, and so their job is really when you call them, they will let you know what the next step is for your kid. They'll either say, wow, we, we really think your kid is at risk. We, we want to see your kid immediately. Or they'll say, you know, it actually sounds like your kid is just having a little bit of a hard time. Why don't you follow up with the pediatrician in a week and, and check back in or something like that? They, their mm-hmm. job is really to assess the mm-hmm. immediate level of risk for your kid. And I, as a clinician, I called them last week. I had a client that I didn't quite know what to do uh, where we were. And I called and, and I consulted with them. And I'm willing to bet that they'll consult with parents too. So I did the same thing. You did. And they're really helpful. They were really good. (laughs) Yes. And I think if you don't know, if you're like, how would I find this? You could probably Google something like mental health crisis help near me. Mm -hmm. I I think if what you'll find is their, their availability is just more because that's what the, that's the gap they're filling. If that makes sense in the community. And here it's region 10 in Albemarle County. It's region 10. Mm-hmm. Just so you know, 972-1800. We all, we all know it. So, so yeah. if, if the other place that oftentimes clients, my clients will go, and I know you guys too, is to the local emergency room. Mm-hmm. And we're really fortunate. We do live in a place where our, one of our hospitals, which is a teaching hospital at University of Virginia, does have a child and adolescent emergency room kind of separate from the adult emergency room. And so that's where kids will go and they'll be assessed um, by professionals there. And that can feel scary and big. And it can also feel really helpful when you get there. I think it's okay to validate that like these are hard steps to take because they feel really scary. Mm -hmm. And they're really important and knowing that there are things that we can do as a parent, right? So that I feel like, okay, I take this step, right? I take this next step. And really you take the first step and then someone is walking with you through all the next steps. Yeah. And I want to normalize this again. When you first have a child and your kid is sick for the very first time, you call the pediatrician and you have a list of numbers and you know who to call and what to do if your kid's sick in the middle of the night. I had, my daughter had croup all the time, which by the way, never happens during the light of day or during a weekday. So it's always like the middle of the night on Saturday. So, I mean, these are things that we're, we're so great about providing details for parents around kids' physical health and the medical and surgical needs of kids. We really don't do a great job around the mental health of kids. And that's, again, we're working on that. This whole pandemic has really magnified the need in our system to be better at that. And so that's really what we're trying to do with this episode. 
And I think the last place you could call would be a suicide hotline. And you all, you could just Google suicide hotline and you'll get a lot that come up and they're really helpful. And again, they're professionals who are trained to talk about this specifically. The one that that came up for us is the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And that phone number is 1-800-273-8255 or 800-273-8255. Or you could text TALK to 741-741. And we give these numbers out all the time we give the numbers out all the time to our clients. And so you could also just make sure that your kids have this number because they're more likely to text than call someone. So giving them that text number would likely be pretty important. Again, it's talk to 741-741. We got all of this data from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. So you can go there to read more. Um, You can also look at the New York Times article that Caroline was talking about earlier. Just don't be afraid to reach out. I think that's the piece. Just realize, again, there's no judgment, no shame. This is just about making sure that everybody's okay. And I think as parents, we can get into a bad cycle of second-guessing ourselves or wondering if we're doing the right thing. And I think this is one of those things where worry about that later. You'll never regret going to get it, get a second opinion. You'll never regret that. Nope. Okay, guys, you can call us and get information about Virginia Family Therapy on our website. If you're looking for a therapist, we have some openings, but we're like the other places where we don't have tons, but we do have some. Um, But we also will really try to help you find someone that can help you. You can share this podcast with folks that you think might benefit from it. Anything else, y'all? I don't think so. I know it's this is a hard topic to listen to, but it's really important. And we just really appreciate you listening. Yeah. We're thinking about you all. Thanks. Bye, guys. Bye.